0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, the Crypto Hipster, Jamil Hassan, where I bring you founders, entrepreneurs, executives, thought leaders, artists, musicians, you name it, all over the world in crypto and blockchain. And today, actually today and this summer season, I am bringing to you a new compilation episode. Last year, from seasons one, two, and three, I brought you the Crypto Hipsters Chronicles. And now, from season four and five, without further ado, I bring you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And what that is, what it was last year, what it is this year, it's a compilation. It's a compilation of three or four podcasts together as like a montage. And on a certain topic or area of interest, in crypto and blockchain, pulling from my podcasts. And now, as we're heading into the summer of 2023, I bring to you the Crypto Hipsters Mysticals. And there's going to be 22 or 23 or 24 around there episodes. And I look forward to you looking forward to it. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for, for enjoying my podcasts. And this is going to be a summer treat for everybody. So, please sit back, enjoy, and, uh, yeah, let me know your thoughts. This is Crypto Hipsters Mysticals, episode 16. Social justice, diversity, and inclusion, far more than just feel-good hype phrases. This Crypto Hipsters Mysticals episode is a compilation of clips from four Crypto Hipster podcasts. First, Rob Viglione, who is the co-founder and CEO of Horizon Labs. Second, Diego Lizarrazo, who is the director of developer relations at Agoric. Third is Iris Nevins, who is the co-founder and CEO of Umba. Daima. And fourth, Adam English, who is a Web3 Keynote speaker and the host of Crypto with English. Enjoy. supposed to me like you're able to mint both fungible and non-fungible tokens, you know, um on your platform. So first question around that. Is what are the investment security issue you know concerns like? Is it a security? There's a lot of debate of like what, whether something's a security and if it's a if it's a legal security or, or legal security. And mm-hmm. you're minting fungible tokens. Does doesn't that make it a security and bring you into the conversation about issuing securities?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is like uh, a, a deeper debate going on, or not debate, but a deeper issue ongoing right now, you know, in, in crypto in general, in particular with the SEC and Gensler. Uh, I can't pretend to to really be an expert on it. We have a great legal team <laughs> that really is analyzing this stuff. But, I mean, we had, as an example, there was something called a crypto rating council years ago uh, that all of the exchanges like Coinbase use to, to evaluate projects like ours, like Zen, is then a security because they will not list a security for exchange on you know or, or list a ex- security on their exchange uh we came up with a, a rating of a five so there's a rating scale of one to five one being you're definitely security five being well no way in hell you're you're security right like again a, a recommendation we came up with five so we, we came up on on par with like a bitcoin that we are as far from a security as regulators you know would think possible that said, it seems like the SEC now is revisiting just the entire industry. Uh, and I don't know. But then to your point specifically, if tokens are minted on our platform and some of those tokens are minted in, in some way, you know, some confluence of governance and economics that makes them a security. Um, what happens to us? I mean, we've launched you know tokens before, like ApeCoin as an example. We've launched other tokens. Uh, and the way we do it is there's a very strict legal process. There's a very strict governance process. The economics have to be done very specifically so that it's not a security that you know, whether there's, that you, know, you have to understand that um, some element of utility or not to this thing. Um, we do things as a company, like very regulatory compliant to US regulations, but that's not to say that, you know, someone else maybe less sophisticated of an organization or maybe they don't care. They, they meant something on our platform that might be security. Thus far, you know, the protocols out there, you know, are um, not being held, you know, basically like, it, it's like if someone does something bad with, you know, some phone or some other technology you launch uh, or you release, you know, the regulators haven't been going after the company like Apple, like, hey, someone, you know, used your phone to commit some crime. Um, so far, that seems to be the case. But again, like, I'm not saying anything definitive because I just don't know, like, I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer. Um, our legal team is for sure, very uh conservative and you know just open for we're willing to work with regulators uh, any way that they they think necessary because we want to be an open book and just make sure we're complying with everything
0: um how do you see the non-fungible token right like, process right now um you know being if it's efficient or not if official security concerns or not and how do you think that your ability to to launch and mint non-fungible tokens on your platform will help improve the industry reputation and standard?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's uh, this is a really tough question, and it's very much related to the previous one. Of uh, There's so much that goes on with how you launch something, whether it's a fungible or a non-fungible token um, in, in terms of how is it governed? And are, are you promising some sort of utility that people are going to get based on their you know, investment by purchasing the, the NFT? Um, all of these things factor into you know the how we test and how you know regulators classify something as a security or not um we we try to stay away from that we try to just be very like we're kind of vanilla conservative software company yes we do launch tokens Yes, yeah, so like we we really believe in this web three thing we want decentralization and everything like that but we just make sure that we do it right and we're just following very strict legal guidelines of how we do anything uh, we do have some technology that i think will make the industry uh, more transparent ironically through the channel of privacy um with these the zero knowledge proofs and this cryptographic engine like for instance we have a, a product um called uh, zk audit. It, it, it's a poc product right now it's called zk audit it basically uses zero knowledge or early zero knowledge proofs or cryptographic um uh, you know uh, cryptographic proofs of um transactions digital asset transactions in a privacy preserving way but basically i could verify like we were working with celsius network by the way, as, as a design partner for this product uh we never rolled it out with them but basically their need was like we're, we're a c5 platform we have a lot of digital assets flowing in our on, on our platform we want to give our users some you know like real-time auditability of our reserves but we still want privacy what we're doing with the, with the money i mean privacy in the sense that you don't want the world seeing all of your you know transaction flows uh so we, we developed this product that basically did zero knowledge proofs and like aggregated balances so you can do proof of reserves without actually seeing any of the transactions we poc'd it on um, you know literally a week before we were going to roll it out to market with them uh they imploded it' a very unfortunate situation um, but we could actually leverage this technology integrated into token mint, so that when, you know, we could potentially offer a product suite so that when people do their own fungible or non-fungible token launches, they could have a cryptographic provability of reserves and economics and governance of, of their token launches. That's it. Like the industry is still really new. I, I do believe that we need to be very open and work with regulators so that hopefully we get intelligent regulation at the end of the day. Um, because like, none of us want fraud or like stupid things to happen in our industry because of the personal industry. And you have an, kind of this big uh, information, like adverse information effect in the industry where people just don't trust the industry because you have some bad actors. No one wants that. So I, I think sensible regulation makes a lot of sense by definition. Uh, and, you know, the more tools that we can roll out to the market to help, you know, end and users, customers, the better, right? Let's make this stuff as safe as possible. It'll never be fully safe. It's still experimental. But let's do what we can actually, to actually be good
0: stewards of, of the industry. Advocacy. I like that. Um, I like the grassroots. And I wanna see, we talked about the Galapagos. I wanna visit the Galapagos, right? Sure. The third point that you said was that you have all these new developers from emerging countries now who are now being involved and are learning. And how have you seen, and you've been here since a, for a few years, like me. How have you seen the impact of COVID and all that flattened and enabling um, the 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 uh, emerging country developers to be more involved in the crypto ecosystem? How have you seen that all play out?
2: Well, I I think I've seen it at the same time. uh, I would have loved to kind of like seen it even more. So clearly one change was like the entire thing of like going to the office, you know, like now with having a more remote uh, kind of like way of living, then you see that like these uh, digital nomads are going all over the world, you know? So they are bringing not only like, their money, but they are bringing their 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 knowledge. So if, let's say in Colombia, like someone goes to Medellin that last year we had like Cosmoverse there in Medellin. So then they can bring that knowledge and kind of start working with like local communities. So let's say that they spend like one year there, then they already have a lot of knowledge that perhaps was not there before. But also kind of like even with developers just working with different companies, you know, like Agoric is a a remote first company. So right now, like uh, it took me almost like two or three months to kind of like meet my manager in person. And, and, uh, we're going to have an offsite to kind of like meet the entire company like at the end of the year. So right now it's much easier for a developer to say, like, look, I may be trying to uh, solve local problems in my country, but I still may be working with like a, a foreign or company that are, like most of the companies well distributed. So that helps a lot. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, in many ways that remote work, Everyone kind of like knew, a lot of people were like, I've been doing remote work almost the last 10 years, but that doesn't mean that that was kind of in like the mainstream media. A lot of people still had to go to the office. They still had to kind of work with their coworkers that sold nine to five every day. And uh, for a lot of people, it was almost unimaginable like to say, like, hey, I'm going to work with someone that is in the other side of the States, you know, or like uh, that is in Australia or that is in Europe. So now, because like regular people, non-developers, non-tech people are also kind of like living that kind of life, it is almost kind of like more accepted. And I think it's easier for everyone to just start like this type of like uh, involvement. Um, the thing that is still is kind of like uh, uh, something interesting is that, you still see some countries and some areas like North America obviously leading, like, development in in crypto, in in Web3. And uh, sometimes it would be interesting to see kind of, like, more, uh, like... effective efforts coming from other places, you know? So sometimes it, f- it feels almost like there's uh, lacking like that little step, like additional step to make it work o- all around because you still have like a lot of talented people living all over the world. And many times you will, you lack kind of like more projects coming from like different places. So that's something that I would like to see. And in some of like the international uh, conferences that I had last year, that was, that was visible. In one of them, like we had something like 3,000 developers in colombia and uh from latin america i think it was only like 30 percent of all attendees so that means that uh most like 70 percent of the rest of the attendees were coming from uh north america europe and perhaps uh like a couple more regions so clearly even if, even if the event was kind of like local like most of the attendees were still like uh, coming from abroad so there's still kind of like a lot of work to do there
0: was like it. <laughs> um, so, let's see. Um, you mentioned before, you mentioned soft skills, right? Not just, the, but actually the soft skills. What are some of the most critical soft skills you see uh, necessary now and who, who fills those roles?
2: Well, some of those roles are going to be filled directly by developers, you know, but clearly, uh, uh, if we want Web3 to be successful, that has to become like a joint effort. So like I'm talking about like a a full ecosystem. So um, uh, anyone that has shipped kind of like a big product should already know that having the best solution sometimes is not enough. And to capture the hearts of consumers and users uh, requires more. You know, So we would have to kind of like, we could have like the best possible systems and it's still not enough adoption. So we need kind of like the best designers, marketers, producers, salespeople, managers, etc. So we need them all to have like su- successful platforms, dApps and, and solutions in general. Um, and I think all of them kind of bring like their own soft skills and hard skills too, like their own know-how. But I think especially in Web3, like what I mentioned before, like that was like they need the need, the, the curiosity, like, and they need to Evolve. Uh, that is really going to be incredibly important, um, and I think also like another role that sometimes, especially like when I'm talking with developers, uh, is not mentioned enough is the the investors. And it's because their confidence in different projects is really what is going to allow us to keep improving the technology. So I'm figuring out like these new solutions. But uh, in, in all in all, what I'm trying to say is that we need a well-rounded ecosystem. Like developers are going to be at the core effort of Web3 growth, uh, but many more pieces need to work together uh, to turn it all, like into a, like all that potential into a reality.
0: I remember AP history in high school. That was a fun class. I loved it. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, I know. Let's talk about specifics, right? Mm-hmm. You have some projects that you're in, you're an incubator too. You have some projects that you're incubating. Uh, could you offer yeah. a, a walkthrough of some of those important highlight um, projects?
3: Yes, absolutely. So, our first, um the first project that we are kind of that we are prioritizing right now is called Tech Misfits, and Tech Misfits is a social networking app for STEAM professionals, organizations, and learners. STEAM stands for science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And, um, and so the idea is, you know, STEAM, even amongst uh, STEAM professionals, right, and organizations, there's a pretty strong kind of awareness of the importance of technology in advancing society and creating opportunity and there's a lot of different folks that are engaging in different efforts to try to educate the people around them or try to create opportunity Um, so the idea is to bring all these folks into one place where they can actually find each other and, and collaborate and share resources um, share information, collaborate on initiatives that help to close the digital divide and increase adoption. Um, at the same time, we also want those people to be able to share the what they know with people that are just starting to learn. Um, so we also are gonna be bringing um, people who are learners, people who are learning te- about tech or developing their tech literacy, for example, onto the app as well. And we're going to be doing educational programming, content, et cetera. So it's kind of like a mixture between uh, a a social media app, like Facebook, for example, um, and uh, an academy. There will be classes, there will be content, um, there will be, you know, video lessons and so forth. Um, We've done a lot of education in the past. In the last year and a half, we've done over 240 events. Um, and over 30 of those were uh, were in real life. And then we've done lots of online um, lots of online calls, meetups, classes, et cetera. And so we're very familiar with kind of the, the, the education space, the event space, the programming space. It, you know, I also have my experience as, a, as an educator. So we're just kind of bringing all of that together um, within this community. In order to access the the app, you have to have an avatar. And so we're releasing the, the first set of memberships will be um, these avatars, these digital avatars that represent what a truly diverse tech community could and should look like, or tech industry could and should look like. And it's a beautiful collection. It's taken us over a year to work on this collection because it's so complex. We have different body sizes, different facial features, different skin tones, different genders, etc. Um, So it's like multiple collections in one. Um, And then we plan to release somewhere around 15 to 20,000 of these avatars. And then once you have an avatar, that's your key to unlock the mobile app. Then from there, you can engage, you can join forums, you can create forums, um, and you can participate in in conversations, you can post opportunities, find opportunities, and we'll be uh, adding additional features over time, like the academy section, um, the classes, the meetings, et cetera. So that's Tech Misfits and we're really excited about that because one of the things that I've found in my just kind of time is that, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the biggest issues that we have when it comes to addressing social justice is too many people trying to do the same thing and not communicating with each other. And it diminishes everyone's efforts across the board. Right, even in one city, for example, you might have 30 different STEAM organizations, and then they're all going after the same resources. Right, they're all going after the same grants, they're all going after the same, you know, donations and so forth. Right, they'd be able to accomplish a lot more if they were actually communicating with each other and collaborating. I truly, truly believe that. Um, and so that's a part of what we want to facilitate is wide, large scale, industry wide collaboration um, and to facilitate that collaboration through software. Uh, so so that's Tech Misfit. Another cool thing about it is that once you have the avatars, you have commercial rights to the artwork. So you can use the art to create your own brand or create you know, derivative art or merchandise or whatever it is. So I think it'll also be really cool to see how everyone that's a part of this community Is also using the art to build additional value for the community and for themselves.
0: I agree. (laughs) Thank you. And you know, the mistake of people who are not experts into experts, you know, uh, is a problem. But one of the problems is also to find a really good journalist, you know, who uh, will is willing to investigate and find and discover the truth. And you actually you interviewed a journalist uh named edward snowden right and not many people get to do that so (laughs) right you know what are some of the things that you learned from that conversation that aspiring aspiring journalists influencers thought leaders in web3 must know about him and about journalism and about your experience with that well
4: uh first and foremost thank you thank you for uh calling me uh calling me a journalist uh i I was fortunate enough to, you know, interview a lot of, you know, interesting people. And by by the way, you know, yourself included, you know, early last year when you were putting out your numerous, you know, scholarship and books. And I think in many ways, you know, you have done this, you know, as as have I. If I was to give advice to an aspiring Web3 crypto journalist, somebody who wants to report on trends in blockchain, cryptocurrency, Anything Web3 is that you have to put yourself out there. And that's not something that's very easy or intuitive for a lot of people. So what do I mean about that? You have to either write things and put it out in public, or you have to speak the things and put yourself out there in public. For a lot of people, that's scary because like, oh, if I put my name out there, if I, you know, put myself, if I publish something about myself People could judge me or people can critique, comment or say whatever. But that is, you know, that is your currency to, you know, finding and doing something meaningful in this space. So, you know, Jamil, like, for instance, when I had you on my show last year, you were probably on what, your seventh or eighth book? I'm thinking it it had to have been up there. Third or fourth? Oh, was it okay? It, it, well, at least for me, it felt like a lot more. But listen, but what I knew about you at the time is that you were on Amazon and on LinkedIn and on other platforms, you were putting out your scholarship. You were writing your thoughts, you were putting it into a book, and you were putting it out there. When you put your scholarship out there, other than the fact that listen, you have the opportunity to share your information with people, but you're also putting yourself out there to be critiqued and judged by experts and non-experts. For a lot of people that can be very, very scary for, to say the least. So, and cause that means is this is your, this is your opinion and you're standing by it. I would say, you know, for podcasting, it's a similar thing when you're putting out episodes, when you're interviewing people, you know, such as yourself or anybody else, you have to, you have to be aware You have to be prepared. You have to essentially be well-studied, you know, with your material as you go out there. Because, listen, other than the fact that it's just a conversation between yourself and a guest, other viewers are looking at this, and they're both experts and non-experts. So one of the things you have to be aware of is that when you're speaking, you want to be both sincere and credible when when, when you're speaking out there. Because otherwise, I think if you don't have those two, why would people otherwise want to either listen to you on a podcast or you know let's say you know read one of read one of your books So for me um, when I first started this about a year ago, I didn't really know much about podcasting or, or creating content or you know understanding how things went viral All I effectively did was I taught myself how to create a Software setup like you of how to live stream. And I said, listen, I'm gonna take a swing at this and let me see where this goes. So I kept, at least on a consist on a consistent basis, I just kept putting myself out there more and more and more. You know, I had on a weekly basis anywhere from one guest to up to six guests. So, you know, it was essentially a game of numbers. And as time went on. I would be contacted by conference organizers, you know, Web3 Summit, you know, organizers as well. And you'd be surprised about how many people will see your stuff. Now, listen, at the time, I didn't have anywhere near the crazy amount of numbers that, you know, you and I have seen of other influencers or podcasters out there. But you can never underestimate the value of who is watching your material. And as time went on, a lot of high visible people who I never would have thought would would have seen my stuff because like, at least in my mind at the time, I'm a, I'm a little fish in the ocean here. That's how I looked at it, but people talk. So, you know, when, when either you put something out there, Jamil, or I do, you know, it may not be the CEO of a company necessarily who sees it, but it's going to be their assistant. It's going to be a middle manager. It could be an intern and they're going to see something interesting. And then they're going to talk about it with everybody else. So the the ripples that that come from this are are far reaching than you and I could think, and they're a lot more significant and they can go to places that you or I can't even conceptualize. So, you know, to to your question, Edward Snowden, that was something I never expected in my wildest dreams to happen. You know, especially I'm doing this for, at the time, less than a year. And I thought to myself, it's like, listen... Award-winning journalists didn't even get to do this. And I'm not saying this to gloat. I'm actually saying this as a motivational piece. Put yourself out there. You will, you will, you will never know as far as how far reaching your efforts will be. Uh and, and I would say to anybody, don't think that anything you do in this space doesn't matter. Even if it's small, we all start at zero in many ways. There is a value to the uh to the old quote in the dodge, you know, essentially um you know, keep trying. So in this, that opportunity in many ways was a result of me, by the way, not being an expert in at least social media or content or publishing, putting myself out there consistently. And as time went on, um, and you know, there's a lot of serendipity in this, I I, I believe too. And by the way, not just for myself or anybody,
0: but you don't, you'll never really understand at least not until later where the ripples go.